0: When you come to Colorado, the only word to describe it is wow. like the first time your kids see a mountain town
1: wow.
0: or explore an ice castle and think it's a winter wonderland. Wow. Colorado, snow's perfect wow. state. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only.
1: Parental discretion is strongly advised.
0: When the Martians first land on Earth in the 1996 sci-fi comedy Mars Attacks, for a moment it appears all will be fine. We come in peace, says their leader, as the music swells and a dove soars overhead. Seconds later, the Martian pulls out a laser gun and opens fire on a crowd of human onlookers. Yet another blockbuster alien invasion has begun. That's Hollywood, of course. But the melodrama underscores one of humanity's most widely held fears that if and when we do encounter extraterrestrial beings, they will wreak all kinds of havoc, much as they do in the movies. Or will they? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is
2: Security Threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity X5, X-Fi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit today. Restrictions apply.
0: Weird Darkness Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… The legend said it was made of clay and given life by mystical means. The Jews created it as a means of protection. So the story goes, at least. We'll look at the legend of the Gollum and see if there is any truth behind it. In the 1860s, John Mudd found some very interesting letters, but he wouldn't publish them for more than 50 years because what he read in those letters terrified him to the core. In 1936, a series of holdups escalated into armed robbery and eventually murder, all carried out by a trio of teens, dubbed the Baby Bandits. It is Abraham Lincoln who issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves. But did he get the idea for this historic legislation from beyond the grave? In 1866, a woman named Laura Foster was murdered. A man named Tom was convicted and hanged for the crime. The crime now lives on in one of the most famous songs ever recorded. During the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was real life when meat purportedly poured from the heavens. People sometimes say they experience a kind of floating, weightless feeling when in bed, but one man's bed floated all the way to the ceiling. Some say this is nothing short of a miracle. Others say it's downright dubious. A unique bible continues to spew out an unidentified oil, and so far, scientists are unable to explain it. And we may or may not ever see an actual alien invasion of our planet. But if we do, scientists are now saying the extraterrestrials would not be here to eat us. And they explain why. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. For his new book, *Aliens*, The World's Leading Scientists on the Search for Extraterrestrial Life, quantum physicist Jim Al-Khalili asks a series of experts to explore how humans might actually make contact with aliens. The possibility is not as far-fetched as it once seemed. Since NASA launched its Kepler mission in 2009, researchers have discovered thousands of new planets and revolutionized our concept of how many habitable worlds could exist," writes astrobiologist Natalie Kubral in one of the book's essays. But while Hollywood suggests we should expect to battle their inhabitants, science tells a different story. Here are five popular alien myths that this book debunks. Myth number 1. Aliens Would Eat Us Movies like The Blob and Critters Imagine aliens harvesting humans for food, an unpleasant prospect. But it doesn't track with the science of nutrition, writes astrobiologist Louis Dartnell. In order for aliens to get nourishment from eating us, their bodies would have to be capable of processing our molecules, like amino acids and sugars, and that requires having a similar biochemistry, a long shot, for a species that hails from a different world. Myth number two Aliens would breed with us. Both of this summer's extraterrestrial blockbusters, Alien Covenant and Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2, involve human alien hybrids. But given that we can't reproduce with our nearest evolutionary relative, the chimpanzee, it's overwhelmingly improbable that we could do so with aliens, according to Dartnell. Myth number three Aliens would look like us. Human evolution depended on so many unique and unpredictable factors, it's nearly impossible that an extraterrestrial species would have human-like features, like the aliens in The Day the Earth Stood Still and Star Trek. It's far likelier, writes neuroscientist Anil Seth, that they'd be as different as the octopus, our very own terrestrial alien, which has a high level of intelligence, a decentralized nervous system, and an alternative style of consciousness. Myth number four aliens would be living creatures. Even restrained films like Arrival get this one wrong, according to scientists. Should aliens contact us, cosmologist Martin Rees believes we will hear not from fellow organic creatures, but from the robots they produced, who can, in theory, live forever. In myth number five, aliens would steal our water and metal. The aliens in Independence Day famously arrived to strip Earth of its resources. But again, that logic doesn't add up, according to Dartnell. Most of our metal is in the Earth's core, not its crust. Asteroids would be far better targets for mining. And icy moons like Jupiter's Europa would be easy places to stock up on water. They're uninhabited, and they don't have Earth's strong gravitational pull. So if aliens aren't interested in harvesting our lands or our bodies, why would they make contact? Dartnell suspects a purer motive – curiosity. If aliens did come to Earth, he writes, it would probably be as researchers – biologists, anthropologists, linguists – keen to understand the peculiar workings of life on Earth – to meet humanity and learn of our art, music, culture, languages, philosophies, and religions. Presumably, we would hide all of our alien movies. In the September-October 1915 issue of the United States Naval Institute Proceedings, a strange story buried in old family letters was shared by pay director John A. Mudd. Mudd stated that he had received the packet of letters from home just a few days after he had shipped out to sea as a midshipman. The letters were the back-and-forth correspondence between a member of Mudd's family and a cousin who had joined the Navy, which is probably why someone thought it might be of interest to Mudd. The letters were very old, ranging from the early 1840s up to the American Civil War in the 1860s when one of the two men died. Just the age of the letters made them interesting, filled with details of a life long ago. But the contents of just two or three of the oldest of the letters contained a story that Mudd felt a need to share with his naval comrades. Mudd didn't publish his account of the tale until many years after he had first read the letters, and there is a reason for that. But first, the tale from the letters. The unnamed cousin of the letters was a lieutenant in the Navy, stationed on the African coast at the time, he wrote. The lieutenant's ship, described as a brig of war, was returning home from a run down south when the crew sighted a ship they took to be a slaver, a ship laden with slaves. Shortly after this vessel was first seen, they lost sight of the ship as a sudden, furious squall that in those seas have stripped many a ship to its deck blew up, and they wondered if the other ship had either been sunk or blown out of view past the horizon. The sailing master was shaken by what he had seen, for he claimed the strange vessel had been pressing forward with her sails full against the wind. No one else had noticed this, if true, for the sighting had been so short. The doctor, we are told, kept an eye on the sailing master. Two nights later, The lieutenant's ship was in the midst of a lightning storm when, out of the darkness, a huge sailing vessel appeared and passed the lieutenant's ship. There were no lights aboard and no sound came from the strange ship as it sailed forward against the wind. A bolt of lightning flashed down which seemed to pierce the high, strange bark as it vanished under the cloak of night. The sailing master, who had been standing near the lieutenant when the mysterious vessel passed, came down with a bad fever that night and told the doctor their ship was doomed. Because that's what it meant when you saw the Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman, you see, is a legendary ghost ship associated with Africa's Cape of Good Hope and believed to be doomed to sail until the end of the world. It is said that it is only seen in storms sometimes it's said it brings the storms, and it is believed that those who see the ghost ship are doomed. It's likely the sailing master felt their whole ship was doomed simply because of how many of the crew saw the strange vessel. One week later, the unknown ship appeared on the horizon again, sailing into a gentle breeze. The lieutenant was on watch at the time and swung his spyglass around to get a better look. Just as he got the ship within his view, a sudden and frightful gust of storm seemed to slap the strange thing off the face of the ocean. The storm never touched the lieutenant's ship. In his momentary glimpse of the mysterious ship, the lieutenant saw that half of the stern or forward windows seemed to have been shot out, and he could almost see into the cabin, but then it was gone. It would seem that by the third time the strange vessel was seen The crew were in general agreement that if it was not the actual flying Dutchman, it still presented them with a bad supernatural omen. According to the lieutenant's letters, the ship's purser told that his great-uncle had been part of an English squadron in the last century that had set out for the Cape of Good Hope with each ship loaded with one cannonball made of silver, for it was believed that silver shot could touch and harm even a ghost and the purser further claimed that the squadron had in fact encountered the Flying Dutchman on their mission. The frigate, called Splice, fired its silver cannonball on the Phantom ship. But in the crew's haste to fire, they only managed to smash part of the stern of the Flying Dutchman, which seems to coincide nicely with what the lieutenant claimed to see. Based on this family story the purser urged the crew to allow him to make a silver ball from the dollars in the strong chest. It's not said if he was allowed to or not, but the lieutenant's ship did not encounter its strange pursuer again, so such a cannonball would not have been used. Mudd states that the letters then tell of a continuing ill luck attached to the lieutenant's ship, mostly stating there was a mutiny that was suppressed, for which three men were hung by their necks from the yardarms. This ill luck, Mudd asserts, lasted from the time of the strange sightings until an unusual gust knocked the brig over sideways enough that it had to be abandoned before it sunk to the bottom in the Gulf of Mexico during the Mexican War. Much to my surprise and suspicion, it was very easy to identify the ship that Mudd chose not to name in his article. Only one known Brig of War both capsized due to a sudden change of weather in the first year of the Mexican War and had to hang three mutineers earlier in its career – the USS Somers. The USS Somers was launched on April 16, 1842, and later capsized while chasing another boat on December 8, 1846. She was initially deployed to Puerto Rico for a shakedown cruise, returning to New York afterwards. On September 10, 1842, the USS Summers was sent to the Atlantic coast of Africa to deliver messages to another ship. Having constantly missed the other ship at various African ports, the USS Summers left Africa for the Virgin Islands on November 11, 1842. The mutiny mentioned by Mudd was a series of events that started around November 25 of the same year, after the ship left Africa. So, given that the above strange events are reported as happening around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, we can narrow down the date range of the events that may have happened to the time the ship was there, sometime around September 10th to November 11th of 1842. Though Mudd chose not to name what vessel his distant cousin was supposedly on, it is undoubtable that most of his readers, being associated with the Navy, would likely know what ship Mud was describing due to the exact two details that let me know what ship it was. There have been very few actual mutinies in American history, and the mutiny on the USS Summers and the subsequent trials were both well-known and infamous in their reputation. The families of the sailors who were hanged were not allowed to bring civil suits against the captain of the ship, leaving a general distrust of the whole matter in public opinion. This is all because the USS Summers was acting as an experimental school to train naval apprentices, so a number of less-experienced sailors were serving on board when it made its trip to Africa. It was a group of these lesser-experienced sailors who were accused of planning a mutiny and chained, and three of which who were eventually killed for having supposedly trying to recruit others for the mutiny, not for actually performing a mutiny, which never happened. The families of the sailors that were executed were denied the chance to take the ship's captain to civil court, which left an overall bad feeling and suspicion in the public eye about how the matter was handled. The summer's affair, as newspapers dubbed it, eventually led to the establishment of the first U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, USA, with the intention of fully training new naval recruits before they were sent out on ships Precisely because one of the vagaries of the supposed plot to mutiny may have simply been that the sailors accused didn't act the way the captain felt they should if they were proper sailors. Because of this contentious history, the story of the mutiny would still have been known and told of as part of a general Navy schooling when Mudd published his strange account of the sightings in 1915, which means that. If Mudd wanted to make up a spooky story of a cursed ship, then the USS Summers was a good choice. While it's quite possible that Mudd is not merely inventing the story, it's very odd that he would not simply name the ship if its history was so obvious to his audience. Perhaps by not actually naming it, Mudd couldn't readily be accused of lying about the ship's history. So I have to be a bit suspicious of the story as it stands at the moment. Still, there are other details that can be tracked down that might take this suspicion off the story, such as an earlier account of the sightings, which I'll keep digging for, and a possible family relation between Mudd and a lieutenant serving during the African voyage in 1842. This is the first, and so far only, assertion I've ever run across claiming that silver can be used against phantoms of any sort i have done a little digging backwards and can't find any other mention of this idea, so it seems to be unique to this account. It's also oddly suspicious that Mudd's ancestor happened to have someone aboard his ship who claimed to have known who caused the damage seen on the Phantom vessel. The account does have the important distinction of actually reporting the Flying Dutchman as appearing at the Cape of Good Hope, which is the proper reported range of the Phantom ship. In many accounts, the name Flying Dutchman is simply used to describe any possible phantom ship worldwide, so while these may be phantom ships, they are not likely to be THE Flying Dutchman, due to not being at the Cape of Good Hope. Oh, and the reason Mudd didn't publish an account of the letter's story earlier? Because the same day he first read the tale, he claims that something happened that scared him so badly that it was years before he could describe both the tale from the letters and his own experience. Up next, in 1866, a woman named Laura Foster was murdered. A man named Tom was convicted and hanged for the crime. The crime now lives on in one of the most famous folk songs ever recorded. During the Kentucky meat shower of 1876, cloudy with a chance of meatballs was real life when meat purportedly poured from the heavens. People sometimes say they experience a kind of floating, weightlessness feeling when in bed, but one man's bed floated all the way to the ceiling. And it is Abraham Lincoln who issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves. But did he get the idea for his historic legislation from beyond the grave? These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. And Link T-triple-zero left a podcast review and used it as an opportunity to talk about MyPillow. Here's what they said. What's up Darren? Thank you so much for keeping me entertained with these awesome stories that you tell so well. I recently got a MyPillow and I love it. I'm a Twitch streamer with a full-time job and it's usually hard for me to sleep and I wake up a lot when I try to sleep. Because of you, I decided to try a MyPillow and I slept so well and uninterrupted that I decided to let you and the Amazing Weirdo family know that these MyPillows are amazing and worth trying for themselves. Keep up the good work. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WEIRD. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing. But what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could right now be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, five people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. 1560. That's 800 831 1560. My story begins in Boise, Idaho, in the summer of 1960 when I was six years old. My aunt moved to Boise from Greenville, New York that summer, and there was no spare bedroom for her, so my parents moved the bunk beds my younger sister and I shared from our bedroom to an odd-shaped hall that was full of huge windows all the way around the side of the room that we slept in. I slept on the top bunk. I enjoyed being able to look out the windows and see the moon and the stars at night. I'd stare at them until I fell asleep. I'm not sure how many nights went by before something very strange began to happen to me. Late at night, after everyone was in bed asleep, I would be awakened by a feeling of someone gently lifting me up off of my bed. Only it was toward the ceiling. I could touch the ceiling with my hands. I did touch it many times. I could feel the heat of the ceiling with my hands and also on my face. I would feel weightless, and the blanket or sometimes just the top sheet would be over me. I would put my hand underneath me and feel that I was raised up off the bed. I would look around at the tops of the windows over my feet and see the stars. I know I was awake. Then, all of a sudden, I would begin to lower back down onto my bed again. It felt weird. I touched the bed as lightly as possible. I would lay there wondering what happened. What did that to me? A few days went by, and the same thing happened all over again. I sort of enjoyed it. I don't know how many times that happened to me before it stopped. I grew to really like it, though now I'm kind of happy it stopped. I've never met anyone who could explain why that kept happening to me as a young child. So, I just say I never knew why. It was a clear March morning in Bath County, Kentucky, in 1876, when meat started falling from the sky. That's right, meat. Between 11 and 12 o'clock, I was in my yard not more than 40 steps from the house, a local farmer's wife named Mrs. Crouch told local reporters. There was a light wind coming from the west, but the sky was clear and the sun was shining brightly. Without any prelude or warning of any kind, And exactly under these circumstances, the shower commenced. Not just any shower, but a shower of fresh, raw meat, some lumps as light as a snowflake, some that reached up to three inches in length. For several minutes, Mrs. Crouch and her husband Alan watched as the unusual downpour fell around them, before it finally ceased, leaving the sky as clear and sunny as it had been before. Immediately, the Crouches believed that the meat shower had either been a miracle or a grisly warning. Before long, word of the meat shower had spread, bringing flocks of curious neighbors to the scene. In the end, an area about 100 yards long and 50 yards wide had been left covered in chunks of meat. It was found on fences, the farmhouse, and scattered across the ground. The overall consensus seemed to be that the meat was beef, as it was a similar color and had a similar smell. However, a local hunter disagreed, claiming that the uncommonly greasy feel of the meat most resembled that of a bear. To end the debate once and for all, a few brave men, skilled in hunting, took it upon themselves to taste a few pieces. Their official decision was that by taste alone, the meat had to be either venison or mutton. Unsatisfied with the three conflicting opinions, a local butcher also took a bite. According to him, however, the meat was none of the above, claiming that it tasted neither like flesh, fish, or fowl. Finally, town authorities decided it was time to get an official ruling on what exactly had fallen from the sky. So they collected samples and wrapped them up, sending them to chemists and universities around the country. One chemist from Louisville College deduced that the sample was indeed, as one of the hunters had suggested, mutton. Another disagreed, though, stating that while it certainly was meat, it definitely wasn't mutton. Eventually, scientists gave up on the what, focusing on the far more concerning where. If it was, in fact, meat, how did it fall from the sky? And more importantly, how did it get up there in the first place? One of the scientists decided that the meat was likely the result of a meteor shower, or meat-your-shower, if you will. According to the present theory of astronomers, an enormous belt of meteoric stones constantly revolves around the sun, and when the Earth comes in contact with this belt, she is soundly pelted, wrote William Livingston Alden, a New York Times writer. Similarly, we may suppose that there revolves around the sun a belt of venison, mutton, and other meats, divided into small fragments, which are precipitated upon the earth whenever the latter crosses their path. In addition, he offered a more macabre theory, suggesting that the meat was actually the flesh of finely-hashed citizens of Kentucky, who had been caught in a whirlwind while engaged in a little difficulty with bowie knives and strewn over their astonished state. One scientist, Leopold Brandes, wrote an article in The Sanitarian, in which he claimed the event was simply a shower of Nostoc, a genus of cyanobacteria which takes on a jelly-like appearance when it comes in contact with rain. His theory was that it simply bloomed on the ground and that whatever fell from the sky was simply a normal rain shower. Both of the more scientific theories for the Kentucky meat shower were later shunned, after a more likely but equally as unfathomable theory came to light both the Crouches, a chemist named Robert Peter and the chemist from Louisville College, all put forth the theory that the Kentucky meat shower was the result of a flock of vultures vomiting simultaneously after feasting themselves more abundantly than wisely. I am informed that it is not uncommon for buzzards thus to disgorge their overcharged stomachs, one chemist wrote, and that when in a flock one commences the relief operation, The others are excited to nausea and a general shower of half-digested meat takes place. The townspeople decided that this was the most likely scenario and elected to believe it as the best explanation for the Kentucky meat shower. Obviously, it had slipped their minds that members of the town had actually eaten pieces of this half-digested meat, unless people were just cool with that in the 1870s. In 1866, a woman named Laura Foster was murdered in Wilkes County. A man named Tom Dooley was convicted and hanged for the crime. That murder and the name Tom Dooley live on in one of the most famous folk songs ever to come out of North Carolina. The traditional version of the story casts Tom Dooley as a dashing, handsome Confederate veteran. When Dooley returns from the war, he meets Laura Foster a young woman who was being courted by a schoolteacher from the North by the name of Bob Grayson. Foster fell in love with Tom Dooley, but so did another woman, Ann Melton. Melton was married, wealthy, beautiful, and insanely jealous. Learning that Dooley was in love with Foster, not her, Ann Melton stabbed Laura Foster to death in a jealous rage. Tom Dooley was blamed for the murder, though. He fled heading for Tennessee. Bob Grayson headed a posse to hunt down Tom Dooley, and the posse dragged the fugitive back to Wilkes County, North Carolina. Dooley realized that it was Ann Melton who had committed the crime, but Tom Dooley's sense of chivalry made him unwilling to see a wealthy woman dishonored and facing a death by hanging. So Dooley confessed to a murder he did not commit in order to save Melton's reputation. On May 1st, 1868, Tom Dooley was executed for the murder of Laura Foster. Grayson returned home to the north. and Melton went slowly insane from guilt, and years later, as she was on her deathbed, the trees around her house filled with black cats, and the air was filled with the smell of burning flesh as demons came to take her soul to hell. In this version of the tale, a complicated story that ends in the death of an innocent man that became immortalized in a folk song that circulated in North Carolina for nearly a hundred years, before it was made nationally famous by the Kingston Trio in 1958. In a way which shows how much the ways in which we define music categories has changed in the past half-century, the Kingston Trio recording of the Ballad of Tom Dooley reached number one on the Billboard R&B charts even higher than its near-top placement on Billboard's country charts. It's said that Tom Dooley wrote the song himself. The legend has it that he was singing it, strumming along on his banjo as he sat on top of his own coffin riding in the wagon on the way to his execution. But the actual history behind the story of Tom Dooley and the murder of Laura Foster are what might be generally described as slightly different from how the song tells it.
2: Throughout history, there have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the true story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom Dooley Oh boy, you're bound to die I met her on the mountain Where I took her life Met her on the mountain Stabbed her with my knife Hang down your head, Tom Dooley Hang down your head and cry Oh boy, oh Hang down your head, Tom Dooley Pool boy, you're bound to die This time tomorrow Reckon where I'll be Hadn't have been for Grayson, I'd have been in Tennessee, oh well now, hang Hang down down your head head and cry, hang Hang down down your your head head and and cry. Tomorrow Reckon where I'll be Down in some Lone Valley Hanging from A white oak tree Hang down Your head Tom
1: Dooley
2: Hang down your head And cry Hang down your head Tom Dooley Oh boy you're bound to die. Oh well, now, oh, your head, your oh, boy, oh, well, now, hang down your head, Tom Hang down your head and cry, oh, boy. well, now, hang down your head, Tom leave Oh, boy, you're bound to die. Oh, boy, you're bound to die. Oh, boy, you're bound to
0: The real story of Tom Dooley and Laura Foster is a lot more complicated than the version told in the song, and it involves a lot more syphilis. Tom Dooley was born in the deeply impoverished mountains surrounding the Yadkin Valley in 1845. Sometime when he was a fairly young teenager, he began sharing the household of James Melton and his wife Anne. Melton was a successful cobbler and had lost interest in his much younger wife who happened to be about the same age as Dooley. With James Melton's consent, Tom Dooley and Ann Melton began sharing a bed in Melton's cabin. James Melton slept alone. Dooley left the Melton household temporarily when he volunteered for the 42nd Regiment of the North Carolina Infantry. After the war, he returned to the hills and resumed his unusual household arrangements. But then, things began to get even more romantically complicated. Pauline Foster, a distant cousin of Ann Melton, had moved into the Melton household when she was hired as a servant. It must have been a small cabin because soon, Dooley and Pauline Foster began having an affair. In a remarkable display of open-mindedness, Ann Melton didn't object to her lover's new arrangement. In fact, she joined in. So, Ann Melton, Pauline Foster, and Tom Dooley were all sharing the same bed in James Melton's cabin. James Melton was still sleeping alone. As if this wasn't complicated enough, Tom Dooley soon met another Foster. This was Laura Foster, another cousin of Ann Melton who had recently followed her cousin to the area. Laura Foster was no stranger to the company of men and soon she and Tom Dooley were carrying on together in an affair seemingly completely separate from Dooley's arrangements back in Melton's cabin. Splitting his time between Laura Foster and his menage a trois in the Melton household seemed to keep Dooley happy and probably pretty tired. What Dooley didn't know was that Pauline Foster hadn't just come to the area to seek employment. She also came seeking treatment for syphilis. As is the way of such things, Pauline gave the disease to Tom, who then gave it to Laura and to Anne. But because of the timing of the appearance of symptoms, Tom Dooley thought it was Laura Foster and not Pauline Foster who had infected him. Dooley vowed revenge on Laura Foster. Laura Foster disappeared on May 25, 1866. That morning, Foster's father woke to discover both her and his horse missing. The horse returned the next day, but Laura did not. After several weeks of searching, a rope that had been used to tie Foster's horse to a tree was discovered on blood-stained ground not far from where Tom Dooley was living. Suspicion immediately began to fall on Dooley, and he fled for Tennessee. About the same time, Pauline Foster also visited Tennessee, and when she returned to Wilkes County a friend jokingly inquired if she had left because she had killed Laura Foster. Pauline Foster also seemingly in jest replied that she and Tom Dooley had killed Laura together. Pauline Foster was soon arrested and charged as an accessory to murder. Fearing for her life, Pauline Foster told everything she knew. Dooley and Ann Melton had killed Laura Foster together. She led them to Laura Foster's shallow grave in the woods, and her badly decomposed corpse was exhumed. The body was only identifiable from the clothing, but the evidence of a vicious stab wound under the left breast into the heart was still there. The police learned that Tom Dooley was living in Tennessee, where they had been working on the farm of a Colonel James Grayson. Dooley learned that the authorities were on to him and fled Grayson's farm. Grayson joined the search party, which caught up with Dooley in Pandora, Tennessee. Grayson persuaded Dooley to surrender, and Dooley was taken back to Wilkes County, North Carolina to stand trial. In a surprising move, which brought the case to national attention, former North Carolina governor Zebulon Vance volunteered to represent Dooley pro bono. When the press learned the complicated details of Dooley's sex life, the newspapers went crazy and the trial became a national sensation. The Adkin Valley region was painted as a decadent bastion of free love, and the public gobbled up as many sordid details as the papers could serve to them. Tom Dooley and Ann Melton were tried separately. Dooley was convicted. Melton acquitted. Tom Dooley was hanged on May 1, 1868, in Statesville. Reportedly, his last words were, you have such a nice, clean rope. I ought to have washed my neck." Anne Melton died in 1874, although the historical record is unclear as to whether she died from injuries from a carriage accident or from complications of syphilis. Although she maintained her innocence until her death, rumors that it was Melton, not Dooley, who had dealt the fatal blow followed Melton to her grave. Interestingly enough, Though it was the more romantic version of the story that propelled them to fame, the members of the Kingston Trio knew of the sordid details of the story of Tom Dooley and delighted in sharing them backstage with the various house crews that they would meet on their tour. On September 22, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that all slaves in the Confederate States would be free as of January 1, 1863. Of course, Lincoln really had no authority over slavery in the South since the Confederacy considered itself a separate country. But that's not the most surprising thing about the Emancipation Proclamation. It's where Lincoln allegedly got the idea for it. After the death of Willie Lincoln in February 1862, Mary Lincoln turned to the comfort of spiritualism to ease the pain of her son's death. Later that year, Mary met the woman who became her closest spiritual companion, Nettie Colburn Maynard, a medium that President Lincoln also met with. Many are familiar with the tale told about a séance attended by Nettie Maynard in 1863 where a grand piano levitated. The medium was playing the instrument when it began to rise off the floor. Lincoln and Colonel Simon Case were both present, and it is said that both men climbed onto the piano only to have it jump and shake so hard that they climbed down. The stories of Lincoln attending séances became so well-known that a piece of music was even published in England with Lincoln's image on it. It was called the Dark Séance Polka which I will play for you in just a moment. Many of those who attended seances with President Lincoln documented those events in diaries and journals. One acquaintance even claimed that Lincoln's plans for the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the Southern slaves, came to him from the spirit of Daniel Webster and from ardent abolitionists who had died and were communicating from the other side. To this day, the Emancipation Proclamation is considered one of the defining documents in American history. But did Lincoln's grand plan actually come from the spirit world? I
1: came to him at 17. To not see does not mean disbelief. Lost in a strange room on the short end of night. Come in, you man. Tis dark inside, but warm. Sit here, stare deeply into my one good eye. Crooked fingers, Clutched and rolled dice. around the table before settling a three and a five John thought you're lucky and unlucky all at the same time three is for freedom but five is for life life taken from you all I can do is to share what the Spirit
2: President, head jump.
1: Well, pardon me, gentlemen, for this intrusion. I overheard one of our soldiers sentenced to death. Yes, Mr.
2: President. A bad example of cowardice and desertion. The young man? Tell me about it. I think the findings of the court what just? Uh, Is that all you have to say? Well, sir, it was our first big battle. We were trying to take a
1: stone wall. We've been trying it seems for years. What? Finally though, we got there. I was
2: fighting, saying it. We were all crazy. On top of the wall? Yes. There was my boyhood shot, looking up at me from the ground. No, no sir, not alive. We had killed him a long time ago, but I knew him. Hanging, hanging,
1: hanging. Hanging. Killing. Killing,
2: killing, killing, killing. Blood, blood, blood.
0: When Weird Darkness returns, the legend said that it was made of clay and given life by mystical means. The Jews created it as a means of protection, so the story goes at least. We'll look at the legend of the Gollum to see if there's any truth behind it. In 1936, a series of holdups escalated into armed robbery and eventually murder, all carried out by a trio of teens. And some say this is nothing short of a miracle. Others say it's downright dubious. A unique Bible continues to spew out an unidentified oil, and so far, scientists are unable to explain it. These stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Murderous Minds Volume 1 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines by Ryan Becker. What goes on in the mind of a murderous killer? What is it about some people that lead them to commit murder? Is there something that is different, or is it simply a switch that gets turned on? Murderous Minds, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines, offers a look into the lives of individuals who didn't just become killers but who managed to avoid the media storm that usually accompanies them. Inside, you will hear about people like Sante Kimes, a 65-year-old mother who was driven by greed and who committed multiple murders with her son. Robert James Ackerman the MBA graduate who murdered three people in order to continue getting lap dances from a stripper that he became infatuated with, Larry Jean Ashbrook, who became deluded into thinking that strangers were accusing him of murder. When he could not take it anymore, he carried out a massacre at the Wedgwood Baptist Church, and more. Each story harbors its own distinct narrative and reasoning for the perpetrators of these heinous crimes, along with the background to the case, their lives, and the aftermath of their actions. Sometimes the truth is more appalling than anything fiction can provide, and Murderous Minds proves it once again. Murderous Minds, Volume 1, Stories of Real-Life Murderers, that escaped the headlines by Ryan Becker. Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample or purchase the title on the audiobook's page at WeirdDarkness.com. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How Would You Like To Be A Published Author With Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly 100 years and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon but also brick-and-mortar bookstores your only job is to write the book. Call Doran's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362, 847 1362 Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Doran's Publishing at 800-847-1362, Imagine someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast – 800-847-1362. In 1936, a series of holdups escalated into armed robbery and, eventually, murder, all carried out by a trio of teens that the California newspapers dubbed the Baby Bandits live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse is a maxim rarely quoted by high school commencement speakers. But for some who attended Preston High School, a different kind of learning institution took this adage seriously, with fatal results. On November 23rd, two young bandits, about 18 years old, robbed three bars in the early hours of the morning. One of the robbers was stocky, the other average size. Two days later, two places in San Francisco's North Beach were robbed, this time by the same robbers, with a third man acting as their leader. Their young age caused the newspapers to call them the Baby Bandits, but their actions showed sophistication and planning. They would steal a car from a garage, use the car in holdups, and then abandon it the same night. In their second crime spree, the holdup men used sawed-off shotguns stolen from a hardware store on Mason Street in North Beach. Police assumed that the gang were from this neighborhood and circulated photographs of local criminals, but none of the victims recognized the photos. Police Captain Dulea was still convinced that there was a connection, so he called in John Dooling, the North Beach beat cop, and asked him to canvass the neighborhood. For the next three days, nothing happened. Then, on Thanksgiving, November 26th, Mike's Saloon on 14th Street was robbed. Dan O'Connell, a customer, was shot in the stomach when he moved too slowly. Later that evening, O'Connell died. The baby bandits had now graduated to murder. The next day, Officer Dooling came in with his first lead. Frank Crone, a recent graduate of the Preston School of Industry, was not working, yet he had been seen sporting a fancy new wardrobe. Preston, a legendary reform school, opened in 1894 and counted such notables as a rapist and writer, Carol Chessman, serial killer Gerald Gallegos, Beat Generation icon, Neil Cassidy, and musician Merle Haggard among its graduates. Further digging revealed that Crone had been hanging out with Ernest Plaw and William Daly two other recent Preston School graduates. Photographs of the three men were positively identified by the victims of the gang's latest holdups. Preston was considered the rookie league of crime. Just as minor league baseball players in the 1930s dreamed of being Lou Gehrig, young criminals dreamed of being John Dillinger. Though he was a hardcore bank robber and a killer, John Dillinger was a folk hero to many whose homes had been foreclosed on by the banks. Police, assuming that the bandits had left town, had put an all-points bulletin out for the state of California. Use every precaution in apprehending these men. They are dangerous killers, it said. The bandits split up. Ernest Plaw hid out with relatives in Merced. Crone and Daly kidnapped a young couple and forced them to drive to Sacramento, where they let them go. Crone and Daly drove on to Merced, apparently to hook up with Plaw. Hungry after their long ride, they stopped to eat at the Square Deal Café. They were observed by a young friend of Plaw's, who hurried to notify Merced police chief Fred Zunker. Zunker and police officer James Turner questioned Krohn, who gave them an International Siemens Union card. When Daly was questioned, he pulled out a gun and ran. Turner fired a warning shot and then squeezed off two shots at Daly, who was hit but kept on running. Crone, who was unarmed, lunged at Chief Zunker, who pulled his gun out. "'I could have killed him,' Zunker later said, but I don't shoot kids." Instead, Zunker clubbed Crone over the head with the barrel of the gun. Turner returned to the café to find Chief Zunker in a life-and-death struggle with Crone. Turner clubbed Crone over the head with his nightstick, knocking him unconscious. Other police followed the trail of Daly's blood for four blocks until they reached the First Baptist Church. Then they heard a shot. Crawling under the church, they found Daly dead of a self-inflicted bullet wound. At about the same time, Ernest Plaw, convinced by his mother, surrendered peacefully to police. Plaw and Crone were reunited in the Merced jail and shared the same cell. Crone awoke in jail on his birthday. I'm 21. I suppose I'll get the rope before I'm 22," he said. Crone described Daly as the leader of the gang and said their ambition was to be as famous as John Dillinger. Both Plaw and Crone blamed Daly for the murder of O'Connell. But O'Connell's dying statement described Crone as his killer. Later that night, Crone made his prediction come true by hanging himself with Plaw's suspenders. That dirty bastard, now he's left me hiding the bag alone, Plaw complained bitterly, and I've got no suspenders to wear to court." Ernest Plaw pled guilty to murder in 1937 and was sentenced to life. He was paroled in 1949 and died in 1984. The gothic horror novel Frankenstein is one of the most well-known stories in which man tries to play God by attempting to manufacture a living being. A similar story, that of the Golem, exists in Jewish folklore and legend, albeit with some obvious differences. For instance, the Frankenstein monster is popularly depicted as an amalgamation of body parts from cadavers, whilst the Golem is said to be made from clay. Additionally, it was science that gave life to the Frankenstein monster, whereas the Gollum is said to have been given life by mystical means. Gollum is said to appear once in the Bible. Psalms 139 verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be although I personally think this verse is referring to human beings yet to be born or even conceived. The word golem means shapeless mass or unfinished substance in Hebrew. According to a Talmudic legend, Adam was a golem for the first 12 hours of his existence, indicating that he was a body without a soul. In another legend, the prophet Jeremiah is said to have made a golem, Some believe these legends regarding the creation of Golems are merely symbolic in nature and may refer to a person's spiritual awakening. There are others who interpret the stories of the Golem literally and believe that it is possible to create such creatures. In the Sefer Yetzirah, meaning the Book of Creation or Formation, there are instructions pertaining to the creation of Golems, and several rabbinic commentaries on this book have provided different explanations as to how these directions should be carried out. In most versions, the golem is first formed into the shape of something resembling a human being. There are several ways, however, to bring a golem to life. In one version, for example, a golem may be brought to life if its creator were to walk or dance around it whilst saying a combination of letters from the Hebrew alphabet and the secret name of God. In another version, the letters Aleph, Mem, and Tav, these letters combined to form the word emmet, meaning truth, are required to be written on a golem's forehead in order to give him life. A third way to bringing a golem to life is to write the name of God on a parchment and stick it into its arm or mouth. One of the most famous golem stories is that of Rabbi Judah Lo ben Bezalel, an important Talmudic scholar. Jewish mystic, and philosopher. This rabbi is believed to have lived at the end of the 16th century in Prague, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. At this time, the empire was ruled by Rudolf II. Although Rudolf was an enlightened emperor, the Jews of Prague were subjected to anti-Semitic attacks. In order to protect the Jewish quarter, the rabbi created a golem. As the golem possessed incredible strength, It also helped out with physical labor in the rabbi's household and the synagogue. Additionally, the golem was given a special necklace made of deer skin and decorated with mystic signs. This necklace made the golem invisible. Another version of the story states that a Jewish-hating priest tried to incite the Christians of Prague against the Jews near Easter during the spring of 1580. As a result, Rabbi Lowe created the golem to protect his people during the Easter season. Whilst the Golem succeeds in protecting the Jews, the story has a less-than-happy ending. The Golem grew stronger and stronger, but it became increasingly destructive as well. Instead of doing good deeds, the Golem began to run amok and threatened innocent lives. As a result, Rabbi Lo removed the name of God from the Golem, thus turning it back into a lifeless statue some believe that the golem was hidden by the rabbi in the attic of his synagogue. In addition, entrance to the attic was forbidden for centuries, and the stairs to the area were even removed. When the synagogue was finally explored hundreds of years later, there was no trace of anything resembling a golem. Golems are such prominent figures in Jewish legend that they continue to inspire artists and writers to this day. For at least the past 200 years, these creatures have made their way into painting, sculpture, illustration, and, more recently, video and digital artwork. They still have an air of fascination and magic about them, but also remind us to question what it really means to be human. Some say this is nothing short of a miracle, while others are downright dubious. A unique Bible continues to spew out an unidentified oil tested by a chemist who couldn't explain the substance. It is totally colorless and odorless, according to them. Jerry is the man who possesses this biblical book. He first kept it in a plastic zip bag before later moving it to a larger-sized container. Many wonder what this oil is and why it continues to ooze from this Bible. The oil is not magical by one perspective, but essentially is the oil of His presence. From the scripture, this is like the Lord thy God leading the Israelites in the wilderness with a cloud by day and fire by night, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 13. The Lord is leading us to Him. God has told us His oil, His presence, and His power are inside all believers from His Holy Spirit. These miracles come from Jesus and his mercy, love, presence, and power. Remarkably, this Bible started emitting oil from the book of Genesis until it spread across the entire Bible. Even the words highlighted with different inked marker colors have not yet bled across the pages printed. There have been numerous reports of people using this oil who have recovered from different ailments. Some of these include a person recovering from a severe esophageal disease, someone fighting off kidney failure, cancer recovery, broken bones being mended, and more. After using the oil, a 67-year-old man named Larry Wyatt was deeply troubled. He was full of anger, bitterness, and unforgiveness. Larry was later visited inside the ICU at the hospital by family and friends. He went from being a disbeliever to finding salvation in the Lord. Not long after being blessed by the oil with a paper towel, Larry later recovered. The Bible isn't the only dripping happening, either. Located in the back of a small gift shop in Dalton, Georgia, is a prayer room. Over the last several years, people have come here to gather and pray for their city, region, and one another. There have been different reports of oil dripping from the walls here. There certainly seems to be some kind of supernatural-type activity happening in this place. Jerry said that God spoke to him and said as long as he doesn't sell the oil, it will continue to flow freely. He continues to give away the mysterious oil in vials to those who sincerely need it. He also invites people to dip their hands in the oil if they wish to do so. One person said after dipping their hands into the oil, it continued to multiply on their hands. It is believed all of this is related to healing gifting. When we see things like this happening, we quickly try to justify it. Perhaps this really is some kind of divine miracle happening. It really makes one wonder. And in a world of the paranormal and extraterrestrial, why not supernatural? Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. All patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness on weekdays, plus two exclusive bonus episodes on the weekends. They also receive early access to the Weird But True video series on the Weird Darkness website – which, by the way, a new video was just posted today about cursed movies. You can check that out on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you sign up, at only $10 a month, you also get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. I'm currently narrating UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens by Donald R. Prothero and Timothy D. Callahan. I took a break from narrating this book during the month of October since it was so busy with our fundraiser and also with the live stream. but this month I am getting back to recording chapters from it and it will be available for patrons to listen to. If you'd like to get more information about becoming a patron, just click on Become a Patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group read creepy stories, or watch eerie videos that I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please, tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, any way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com, and if you'd like, you can send me something physical in the mail. You can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please, take a moment and leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Lovely Trish left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, best podcast ever. I love this podcast. <laughs> Darren Marlar does an amazing job and tells the best stories. I thank you for keeping me going during my workday and drive home. You are the best at what you do, and I am obsessed. Mom to 6 left an Apple Podcasts review from Australia saying, • Want to be scared and feel safe? This is for you. Darren presents quality narration of a myriad of dark, fantastic and mysterious stories. And unlike other podcasts I've listened to, he not only walks us through the darkness, he ensures that we find light at the end of each episode. We're not left feeling creeped out or feeling vulnerable. I highly recommend Weird Darkness. It never gets boring and it offers hope. Darren's promotion of his personal mission to assist those who suffer from depression and anxiety is to be highly commended. Thank you, Darren and company. Keep up the weird work. God bless. Sonia from Australia, a fellow weirdo. And then Thord Nell from uh, the Philippines said, What a beautiful voice! Creepy stories, yet Darren makes you wanting to listen. Well, thanks to everybody for the really nice words. I appreciate that. If you've not already done so, I would love to hear from you. Again, email, message, or better yet, leave a review in your podcast. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876 was written by Katie Serena. Hang Down Your Head Tom Dooley was posted at North Carolina Ghosts, and the song, The Legend of Tom Dooley, was performed by the Kingston Trio. The Gollum was written by DHWTY. Baby Bandits of San Francisco was written by Paul Drexler. Lincoln's Messages from Beyond was written by Troy Taylor. And the song Dark Seance Polka was written by Taryn Krantz and performed by David Juist and Taryn Krantz of JokerCode.com. Strange Sea Creatures was posted at AnomalyInfo.com. Bed Rising was written by Eddie R., Miracle Bible Dripping Oil was posted at FreakLore.com, and To Serve Man was posted at AlienUFOSightings.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. Now that we are coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Romans 8 verses 38 and 39 Nothing can ever separate us from God's love neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. IRS. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up… until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions Now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800 417 Nine seven four three. That's
1: 80-417-9743. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy? You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead. Grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.